For those that snuck in late, uh, my name is Preston. I'm one of the elders here, teaching pastor. Yeah. Where'd that come from? Was that my mom? <laughs> no, it wasn't my mom. Bummer. Um, but I get the privilege of, of preaching today, and that's what it is. It's a privilege. So uh, before we open the Word of God, which we will be in Romans 12, so if you're one of those that... Um, that it might take a little longer to find Romans 12. Go ahead and start now. Do that discreet. Like, you know what you do. You like discreetly just kind of flip through. And then you're like, I don't know where it is. And then you find, finally like, is anybody looking? And then you make your way back to the index. And then you're hoping. And then you kind of shut it. And wait till nobody looks anymore. And then you're like, okay, it's 1147. And then you open it and it looks so natural. So if you need to do that, go ahead and do that. But let me, let me start with this. Um, and then I'm going to tell you kind of what we're, what we're looking at today. So <clears throat> when I was in elementary school, I grew up in Morristown, and I went to, did anybody grow up in Morristown? Any Morristown folks? Great, great. Love it when it works that way. Um, thanks, Scott. So I grew up in Morristown, went to West Elementary. We are the Warriors, West Elementary. And West Elementary was unique because I was, I mean, I don't think I was a minority at West Elementary, but I was close to it. So I grew up with a lot of, you know, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of African Americans at the time there. I think a lot of Hispanics now uh, in addition to that. But one of the beauties of that was my favorite day of the year. So if anybody that knows me knows that I enjoy sports, what would my favorite day of the year be? public school field day absolutely that was the day and they always put it at the end of the year so I'd work real hard and and still be in school when field day came but I love field day because I love sports I love competition I love competing um and and, you know I was I'd like to think that I was fairly athletic I was fast um you know I played baseball and and I, I would play anything with a ball if, if there were some people to play. And so, um, but, but, but the drawback was I wasn't big. <clears throat> I mean, I know you look at me now and you say, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> you really bulked up. But, but it is true. I wasn't always this big. <laughs> so, <sighs> well, I'll give you an example. Scott, go ahead and show them. Don't get scared by this. But I scared some people. This was actually, this was, this was once I went on a, a weight gain program. This was sixth grade, actually. So I wrestled in the 82-pound uh, weight class at Westview Middle School. Uh, but in elementary school, I wasn't even that big. So field day was fun, and I, I competed. But those of you who know field day, know about public school field day, what is like, and I don't know how it works now, like, listen, well, we sent them all out, so they won't even, this won't have an impact on them, but, and I know, there's people older than me, so I can't say back in my day, but, but really, back in my day, <laughs> if you didn't place, you didn't get a ribbon. Like, you could hypothetically go to field day and walk home a loser, yeah. and it was beautiful, man, it's great. So I, I would get ribbons, but the anchor event of field day, minus the 50-yard dash, because that's pretty important too, and I was good at it, but the anchor event, does anybody know, what, what is like tug of war, tug of war, that's when, that's when you see the camaraderie of a class or, or the division of a class, that's when you see, you know, the size of a class really matters, well, I wasn't big, right? But I knew how to run my mouth. Like, <laughs> and we had, growing up all through elementary school, we had this girl, yes, this girl in elementary school, her name, and I, I actually did a search on, on Facebook this week just to see if, like, maybe she was out there somewhere. So um, if you're on Facebook Live, Kiki Kyle, this one's for you. But her name was Kiki Kyle. And Kiki was not your typical... I'm going to sit on the sidelines. 
to put it in perspective, let me give you a few examples. Kiki Kyle played football. I didn't play football. You saw me. I was little, but I wasn't dumb. Kiki Kyle played football. And she was like, it wasn't like this token female player on the football team. This was like, if Kiki went down, that, there would be a gaping hole in the defense and offense. She played both ways. Kiki Kyle was one of these that, and for some reason, I was telling Mandy this week, we didn't call it dodgeball. I don't know. Maybe it had some different rules to it, and that's why. But we called it battle ball. And I think because, like, but, but you still sat the balls in the middle of the gym, uh, half court, lined up on the baselines, sprinted, and whoever, you know, and then you tried to hit each other. But then when you got out, you had to stand back by the wall, and if you could catch one, then you were back in, and which is pretty much like dodgeball. But so Kiki, like you wanted to be on Kiki's team because literally every boy, like you, did, you, you were scared of her. She had, she hands down had a better arm than any of us in the school, or at least in my grade. And so you always wanted to be on Kiki's team. So I say all that to say we're, we get to field day, you want Kiki Kyle. Like, there's one, of two, there's one of two people that are going to be at the end of that rope, right? Like, I, I was a scrawny guy. Like, I'm not going to be the anchor guy that's, you know, like, trying to, that's not me. I was the guy that just ran my mouth, said, well, y'all are going down because I got Kiki. <laughs> so, one of two people are going to be at the end of the rope. It's going to be the guy that, that really doesn't, he just happens to be a bigger individual, Right? You know, this is like this guy's time to shine. He's never done anything in gym class. You know, he's like, he's a big dude. But we're like, hey, this is your chance. All you got to do is use what God's given you, right? (laughs) Use it. Anchor down, grab a hold of that rope, and lean back. (laughs) Well, Kiki went up against those people. She wasn't big. Like, she 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 was a lot bigger than me, but she wasn't obese big. She was just, she was just brute. Um, So... Here, all that to say, that, that's funny, whatever, all that to say, no matter how good I was, no matter how much I cared about tug of war and field day, I needed Kiki Kyles. I needed the bigger guys that just leaned back because I could not do tug of war by myself. Tug of war was the ultimate example that we need each other. And that's, that's what we saw in field day, and you know, at the time in fifth grade, I wasn't saying, man, that would be a great sermon illustration, you know, 30 years from now. But what we're going to look at today is the fact that we need each other. The main idea for today is, as you make your way to Romans 12 is that we are designed to be in relationship with God and with people. That's just how, he, that's how he's made us. We're designed to be in relationship with God and people. So how many of you heard, how many of you heard somebody say, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't do the whole church thing. Or, you know, me and God, we got our own thing going on. Or I love Jesus, but the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. So I don't, you know, I just don't want anything to do with that. Or, or if you're being honest, maybe, maybe we can be honest for a minute. How many of you happen to be here, you know, today and, and you feel maybe Somewhat like that. You've still got some of those thoughts like, I don't know if I want to commit to these people. I don't know if I want to commit to this thing called church. Maybe you feel like, why do I put time in every week into something like this? Or there's, there's got to be more. And I, I've heard some rumblings of this. There, man, there's got to be more to church than what I'm, what I'm seeing or experiencing. Uh, most of us can relate to either hearing somebody verbalize that or saying something similar ourselves. And so today we are going to look at Scripture. We're going to let God shape our view about our relationships, both with Him and with people, with other people. And so ultimately we're going to see that according to Scripture, once again, the main idea that we are designed to be in relationship with God and people. And Jimmy mentioned it a couple sermons ago, a couple weeks ago, in regard to genuine worship. And he said this, he said, genuine worship is loving God and loving people. And so we're going to build off that. But, but really, to appropriately do that, I want us to see, I want us to gain conviction, and I want us to act 
in obedience to the fact that we're designed to be in relationship with God and people. So we can't genuinely worship outside of this circle of people and this vertical relationship with our God. We're walking through a sermon series right now, and, and that's kind of how we landed here. The series is called This Is Us. Who are we? What makes, what makes us who we are? What makes true life, true life? What makes the local church, the local church? And so we've got some core values here at True Life. The core value that ties into this is the fact that we need each other, that relationships are vital to spiritual growth and that and a healthy life. And so it's our philosophy of ministry that we're a church of small groups. And so we are going to touch on and uh, give you an opportunity to, um, to move into relating to people through a small group. Uh, and so that's one thing I'm going to ask of you at the end of the service is to, uh, to consider that and contemplate that and make a, make a commitment if that's not something that you've done. Uh, so like I said, we're looking at Romans 12. And so I just want to give you kind of a 30-second synopsis here. I don't think I've ever done anything in 30 seconds, but a synopsis of Romans. How are we at Romans 12? Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote Romans, and we're actually going to look at a couple other uh, books that he wrote uh, today in conjunction with this because it's, uh, you know, there's some things that parallel there. But the first 11 chapters of Romans, really the first eight chapters specifically, lay just this this doctrinal foundation of our inability to, to be righteous on our own. Our absolute ineptitude and inability to have any righteousness of ourselves, to obtain any righteousness on our own, and our absolute need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who gained access to God the Father and then gave us the ability, he, the great exchange, he traded all the sins that we have committed. He bore those and took those on. And then he, we in turn get his righteousness. And so the first 11 chapters is, is Paul's just making this strong point. You know, most Bible scholars say the Romans is the most clear book of the Bible that you just see this systematic theology of the gospel. And so... We get to chapter 12. He's already laid that foundation. And now he's saying for the next four chapters, it's all good that you know this. But if you only know this and you don't do anything with it, there's no transformation in that. So now we're going to try to put some teeth to it. And we're going to try to look at some practical instruction that if you say, yes, I realize that I am apart from Christ, that the only way to God is through Jesus, and now I receive his righteousness. I don't have anything to offer, but I'm hiding behind the sacrifice of Jesus. If that's what we're saying, what does that look like as it fleshes itself out from our lives throughout the book of Romans, throughout present day? So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to read a couple verses starting in verse 1 of chapter 12 through verse 5. And I... I, my voice has been kind of coming and going. I've had people praying that I wouldn't lose my voice. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Depends if they like me or not. <laughs> um, so I've got some lemon water. There's nothing, no hard drink up here, okay? Just some straight up lemon water. Mm. Verse 1. <clears throat> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to camp out and kind of grab a hold of verse 4 and 5. And so as we look at specifically verse 4 and 5, and we'll come back and 
talk just briefly about verse 3. But verse 4 and 5 is where we're going to camp out. That we, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we see in the New Testament specifically, there are several terminologies that they use for the church. There's t- several metaphors uh, that, that many of the, the New Testament writers use. And so um, obviously today's the body of Christ, but we see the flock with Jesus being the, the great shepherd and, and we're his flock and the branches. So Jesus is the vine and, and we're the branches. And so we've got to be, you know, obviously connected to him you know, we're, we're referred to as a household of God, and, and there was some reference to that in one of the songs. Uh, the bride of Christ, that it's a beautiful picture, and that's why we, we, we model marriage, biblical marriage, after this unity between Christ and the church, and that he's coming, one day he's coming back for his bride, and he's, he's the ultimate example of, of a groom. And so, the body of Christ is another metaphor that we see in Paul, for whatever reason, um, which there are probably many, Paul uses this metaphor not only in Romans, but we're going to see in just a minute that he uses it throughout many of his writings. You can, uh, we're going to look just at a couple passages in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 1 Corinthians. And so those four books alone, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, he tells all of these people who are different groups of people in different locations that you are a body. And there's so many implications to that. Uh, but one of the cool things is like this, this isn't, you know, Paul, Paul wrote to all these different churches over the course of at least those four books, probably over the course of about four years, somewhere between 80, 56, and 60. So, so I just kind of picture like, and I'm the same way, but like, Usually somebody, when they get fired up about something, you know, they're just kind of in that for a season, right? Like they just, they, they look at it through that lens. You know, they, I think about, um, I even think about Terry, I, Terry Robinson. I see you, she's doing a devotion about the, the shepherd. And, and so the lens is like everything she looks at, it probably relates to it in, the, in that way. Uh, and I, I picture this with Paul that Every time he's writing to one of these, uh, to one of these churches right now, he's, he's telling them the same thing. You are a body. You are a body. You are knit together. And so let's just look a little bit at, at a couple of those uh, passages, and then we'll camp out in Romans. But there's this consistent analogy. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, we'll kind of rapid fire some of these. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For as by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. There is one body and one spirit. Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Ephesians 22, coming back to Ephesians. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we're going to see a couple truths about the body of Christ. What are some things that we can identify that are absolutely non-negotiably true about this, this metaphorical analogy of the body of Christ? The first is that Christ is the head. Ephesians 1.22 just mentioned that. He said once again, he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is all in all. Put all things under his feet. And so the implication of seeing Christ as the head. And we can even see uh, back, back to Romans. So no more Bible sword drills. Promise you. I'm not going to bounce around anymore. Camp out. Romans 12. If we, if we back up before we dive into 4 and 5. If we back up, back up to verse 3. 
says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. So picture it. We've got this body, right? I mean, we literally can visualize just a stick figure, whatever, this, this body. Paul's telling all these churches, the first thing I want you to get is that you don't get the rule and reign of this body. That's spoken for. The head is Jesus. The head is Christ. And so when we start there, once again, and let's use the first 11 chapters of Romans, when we start there and realize, you know what? This isn't anything that I can muster up. I can't have a relationship with, a, with God apart from Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body. It puts, immediately, it puts in perspective that we can't be puffed up on our own. And that's what he's telling them in Romans 12, 3. He's like, listen, we're going to launch into all this how-to and practical instruction, but let's set some things straight. Don't you dare think too highly of yourself. Anything that is good that is coming into your life is the grace of God and a gift of God. So please think soberly about what you bring to this body. I'm the head and you're a part of it. You're a member, but you're not the head. It brings a balance to how we should view ourselves because not only are we are we challenged with this, uh, th- this command not to be puffed up, but we're also, we're also encouraged by that. You know, I think sometimes we see in the church that, you know, we got two ends of the spectrum. You got the guy that's like, for some reason, thinks that he, he is the reason that everything good happens within the church. And then you've got the, the guy on this end that says, man, I am the human life Eeyore. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. I'm not good at anything. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just you know, the, the good old say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's absolutely true. But when we still live in this, I'm just a sinner. <laughs> I don't have any. You know what? When Christ is the head of your body, you got some things that are going to help people. You got some things that you have to offer. Not because you're good but because you've got a good God who has saved you through the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us, grace was given. See, once again, so he's telling the church at Rome, he's telling the church at Ephesus. Pretty much the same thing in Ephesians 4, 7, as he said in, verse, uh, in chapter 12, 3. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God's grace was poured out on our lives through Christ's offering, through Christ's life, through Christ's death and resurrection. Everything flows from the head. Anybody from Cock County? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Man, I love you, Scott, but you didn't choose it. I know. I got you. <laughs> um, I played, going back to high school, I played high school baseball, we played Cock County. You know what Cock County's uh, mascot is? Scott, you're not allowed to answer. Cock County's mascot. And fighting cocks. Yep. Can you imagine? Have you, have you all ever seen? We got some, some people that have some livestock, maybe some chickens. A chicken with its head cut off? What happens? You cut the head off. And, and listen, I will preface this. I'm not, I grew up in Morristown. I didn't grow up in Cock County. But I'm also not a farm boy. So, I just don't want there to be a pretense like you're, you know, I don't know much about it. And if I pretend to, then all the guys that know me are going to call me out and make fun of me because that's not who I am. So, but I have seen a chicken with its head cut off. I've never cut a chicken's head off. What happens when the chicken has its head cut off? Yeah. Does it immediately just, I mean, is it like the guy getting shot in the movies that drops like that? Every shot in the movie is like the best shot ever? No. He flops around, right? He may even get up and, you know, end up somewhere else. That's exactly what happens to the church, to the body, when we don't have Christ as the head. 
there is no life. There is some, there is some resemblance of life. There's some fledgling. There's a little bit of flopping around. There's some movement. But unless we've got Christ as the head, we will fall. We will fail. We will eventually run out of steam. And we will run out of life because all of our life is connected to Christ the head. So we see that Christ is the head. We also see that every part of the body has a purpose. So let's, let's hang on to the fact that, yes, we can, we can agree. Can, can we agree that that makes sense, that Christ, we're going to let Christ be the head of this body. So if that's the case, number two, every part has a purpose. We may not be the head, but we got a part. We are a part somewhere. And this is always dangerous with the body analogy. It's a lot easier with like the flock or, you know, because I know what some of you are thinking. Like, I know so-and-so and I know what part he is. <laughs> I just want to call that out as sin. Repent. <laughs> Repent and, and we're, we're going to pursue unity in this body. But in reality, we are uniquely gifted. Each of us is uniquely gifted. Verse 4 says, for as we have, how many members? Many. How many bodies? One. Many members. One body. But all the members do not have the same function. We're not all supposed to look the same, be the same, serve the same, act the same, Otherwise, and, and, and we're not going to read, I mean, Paul goes on, if you look at those, those uh, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to write that down and go read that, he goes on a pretty big tirade about, about you know, if the, the eye can't just you know, be on its own, the foot can't be on its own, you can't just have one part. So, we all have a function. We all have a part, right? You guys, who, who likes to work out? <clears throat> this is like, I don't know how to answer that. I think we need to start a uh, spiritual exercise class or something. I think we have three people that enjoy the, the, uh, the gift of exercise. That is a stewardship issue, guys. God's given us one body, right? Um, okay. You ever been to the gym? And you ever seen the guy that just is compulsive about a particular body part? Maybe it's upper body. You ever seen the guy that's just jacked? It's like, dude, you, like, he, he, doesn't, he bench presses cars. He has to go to the parking lot to max out because there's nothing in the gym. But, like, you put the guy under a squat rack and he starts with the bar. He's like, ah, you know, I want to take it light today. It's disproportional. God wants the body to be very proportional. And so, if we're only focusing on certain members of the body, we're like the guy that's at the gym that's only working out the upper body. You put up, so there's a guy, and there's a couple guys that are competing for this, but this guy actually has a name. This is the real life Popeye. And it looks like, if you Google it, looks like maybe there's some debate over who the real-life Popeye is because there's a couple other guys. But I, I'm pretty sure that his biceps are 31 inches. And so show him flexing there. And by the way, hey, I don't know this guy. This guy may love Jesus, and that's cool. Go back to the, next, go back to the other one. Like, what do you see, what do you see that's kind of weird about that, though? His forearms. It's like, dude, how do you have biceps like that and your forearms don't at least like come along somewhere in the process? That's exactly how we as, as the church often treat the body. We come, right? And we say, listen, we're going to lean on the guy preaching. We're going to lean on the worship leader. We're going to lean any, on anybody that's that's forward-facing, that's our biceps. You know, when my friend's got a problem, 
I'm going to call the pastor and have the pastor minister to him. What? The body is supposed to serve the body, right? Is this an important role? Absolutely. Is there a lot of weight in it? Absolutely. But you know what? That's a really important role that Miss Judy's doing because people are going to come in here pretty angry if they don't have some coffee. That's a real important role that we got some child care people back here doing because I don't want to hear kids screaming while I'm preaching. I mean, there's probably more to it than that, but they're, t- they're sowing seeds of faith in Jesus. But if we approach the body of Christ and elevate certain parts, then we're never going to tap in And belong to each other the way that God has designed. And so how has God designed us? He's designed us to be in relationship, once again, with Him and with people. See, I think this is an antidote. Like, this is an antidote to consumerism. Consumerism in in the American church is sweeping across the country. I want to come And I want to be fed and I want to partake and I probably will critique and I'll give my opinions. And I just, man, I just want, you know, it didn't have this. Man, they were pretty strong in this. And but you never brought anything to the table. And if you are in the body, which means you are, you have a relationship with Christ, you are saying, God. I am apart from Christ, I am nothing, but I'm trusting in Jesus to have this forgiveness and relationship with you. God has placed you, automatically placed you into the body, and he has never designed it in a way that you are supposed to just receive from the rest of the body. Matt Chandler, preacher that I enjoy listening to down in Texas, listened Several months ago, to some services or sermons uh, that they, uh, the sermon series called Gifted for Love, uh, covering 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And really, it's just like this passage. So if we went on, and you know, I don't have time to go on because I'm still trying to hone things in and I'm long, but if we went on, we would see that Paul's going to talk about some spiritual gifts in Romans 12. Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4. So, here's the bait. If you will come back in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about serving. We may not touch on spiritual gifts because I'm not preaching, so I don't know exactly what they're preaching on, but, but we are going to unpack this a little bit. What I want us to see today is just the foundation of the fact that we can't do this thing alone. We need each other, and that's how God designed us. Okay? So Matt Chandler, when he's preaching through this series, he calls it the LeBron James effect. See, LeBron James is a stud. I don't really care for him as a basketball player, but I cannot argue with the fact that he's one of the best basketball players of all time. Dominant. Physical prowess. Amazing. But you can't, he can't win championships on his own. Proven. You got to put five guys out there and the Golden State Warriors, who I do like because Draymond Green is a Michigan State grad and that's where I went to school and Michigan State beat Penn State and that's where Tony McKinnon likes. <laughs> Sorry. That's, man, that was a rabbit trail. That was the Lord. The Lord just wanted me to exhort you that, brother, there's, tomorrow, there's next week. Okay? It's going to get better. And I don't know if we'll win again, so I got to relish it. Anyways, Draymond Green went to Michigan State. Golden State Warriors beat LeBron's team. Well, that's maybe not a great analogy because the Golden State Warriors is full of a bunch of studs too. But what it does prove is no matter how good one person is, five people that play together are way more effective than one person with four feeding off of him and trying to hold him up and support him. That is the body of Christ also. Every part belongs together. So we see that Christ is the head. We see that every part has a purpose. And we see that every part belongs together. Verse 5 in Romans 12. 
says, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we're uniquely gifted. God's done something that, that he's given us something. We can once again read on and see that if you're in Christ, that he's given you at least one gifting that is not for you to hoard, but is for you to serve the body. Okay? So we're uniquely gifted. We're individuals. However, we're members of one another. Okay? Just like the body. My right le- I'm right-handed, right? I'm right-legged, I guess. I kick my right leg. But that doesn't discount that I would really like to keep my left arm and left leg. They're not as strong. They're not as good at things. But they do work together. When I go to give my wife a hug, it'd be kind of weird to do the one-arm hug, right? There's a lot of good things that come out of having all my members of the body. So we're individually members of one another. So we've already seen that there's an antidote to, the, antidote to this consumerism mentality that we're kind of faced with. But this is also an antidote to individualism. Another, another idea and propaganda that is just rampant. Maybe, I mean, I guess somewhat in the church, but just in the country as a whole. Like, you do you. You've got, you've got enough in you. If you just dig down, if you search yourself, if you just get in touch with who you are, if you just tap into all the good in you. Now, there can be a lot of truth in that in Christ because Christ is our, is our substitute. And so, yeah, positionally, we are right with God. But if we're always looking inward, a lot of times we're not going to find a lot, of, a lot of real helpful stuff, a lot of real good stuff. So the idea that we can do this thing on our own, this Lone Ranger, you probably maybe have heard the term Lone Ranger Christianity. Man, I mentioned some of that. Me and God got our own thing going on. I'll do me, you know, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. I'm not connected to anybody. But yeah, me and God, we got our own thing going on. I think this shows, this analogy all throughout the New Testament shows that 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 is, that is unbiblical thinking. The only way that God has designed us is to be in relationship with him and people. So a guy by the name of Richard Lovelace writes, The organic metaphor for the church used by Paul absolutely negates this conception by asserting, and this conception being individualism, by asserting that grace is conveyed through the body of Christ along horizontal channels as well as through the vertical relationship of each believer to God. No individual, congregation, or denomination of Christians is spiritually independent of the others. Therefore, the quote, normal Christian life is not simply a function of an individual believer's relationship to God. That's not normal. That's atypical. If he is isolated from Christians around him who are designed to be part of the system through which he receives grace... Or if those Christians are themselves spiritually weak, he cannot be as strong and as filled with the Spirit as he otherwise would be. See, we fit together because we need each other. That's, that's the core value we're looking at. We need each other. There's 59 one another statements in the New Testament. So it's obviously important to God Right? The Holy Spirit has inspired these guys that are writing. Many of them disconnected from the fact that other guys are writing about one another. Right? But listen to some of these. And I'm just going to fire these off. He tells us in John to love one another. And many, many times, 16 other times, he says love one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Romans 12, again, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, build one another up. Be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, submit to one another, consider others better than yourselves, look to the interest of one another, bear with one another, teach one another. And it goes on and on and on and on. So... They are really, really concerned 
about these churches that they're writing to, Paul specifically, real concerned that the church at Rome doesn't just take this as this, this first 11 chapters, theological teaching. Man, that's a good word, Paul. Thanks for encouraging us. He says, go live it out. Go one another, each other. Go do something with each other because you belong to each other. You're members of one another. The way we do that at True Life, the way we flesh that out is through, how many of you know if I said, what are the four components of kind of how we do things at True Life? And I'll give you the first one. The first one is rows, what we're in right here. What's number two? Circles. Coming back to that because that's the answer. What's number three? Closets. And then number four? Streets. Right. We're going to gather together. We're going to worship together in rows. We're going to gather together in circles because that's how we're going to flesh this one anothering out. That's how we're going to flesh out that we belong to each other and then we have something to give to each other. And so that's what I'm going to ask you in just a few minutes uh, to to consider and, and see where you're at on that. Andy Stanley has a church in Georgia, but he says primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. So this isn't some new concept. All right, this isn't some idea that, you know, church, church growth experts said, you know, hey, if you guys kind of do this small group thing, then you guys are going to explode and have numbers out the roof. This is just the biblical model, and we can look in the, in the Acts, the early church, we can look that they're, they're meeting in the temple daily, they're gathering from house to house. That's just the normal rhythm of, of the early church's life. And so we want to see that in, the, in our lives. We want to flesh that out through small groups. So he also says, when everyone's sitting in rows, you can't do any one another's. Now, I would push back on that one a little bit and say, eh, you still can, right? You can still one another within the corporate setting. Um, but I think we would agree that it, it is more difficult to do that on a regular basis than it is in a circle, in a small group. I think what we see when we look at the fact that every part belongs together is that this helps our spiritual growth flourish, right? Because when we realize that we're not just takers, we're givers, we got something to offer to the body, we are a part of the body, and we have a purpose as a part of the body, some of the, mo- some of the most uh, fulfilling moments and experiences in every believer's life is when they're going to act in obedience to what God has called them to do and see the fruit of what God does through that. That's some of the most fulfilling times. Some of the most discouraging times is when you're going to feel God nudging you to serve somebody, be a member of the body, go minister to this other member of the body, and you decline. Disobedience is discouraging, right? Every time God calls us to something, he's calling us to it because he knows the big picture. He sees what it's going to do. He sees how our obedience in being part of the body and joining together is going to ultimately fulfill the purpose of the, the big body. I'm going to end with this and then we're going to talk about how we apply this. But the body compensates for itself, right? So how many of you have had a bad ankle, ankle injury in the past? If you have, a, if you have something that's hurt, and we'll use an ankle as an ex, as a example, and you walk on that ankle long enough, what ends up happening? It gets sore, but oftentimes, or you use, yeah, okay, oftentimes you end up hurting, something else hurts. Man, now my knee's hurting because my ankle is hurting. So everything gets out of whack when something else is hurting. You know what, guys? That's the body. When you hurt, I hurt. But guess what else the body does? God has designed this body physically and corporately to heal together, right? 
It's amazing. Like, our body can compensate for deficiencies in other areas by serving and, and, and sacrificing and giving from another part. And the same thing is true in the body. So, so this, this compensates. When you come in and you're hurting and your tendency may be, and I just, I don't want to share what's going on in my life, right? Because I'm afraid that people won't understand. I'm afraid that they're going to tell me, get out. Man, I, we've never heard anything so ridiculous in our lives. That's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. Or how could you be so silly to, to commit that sin? Like, if we approach our body in a fearful manner, and we always are withholding, and we're not willing to just lay it out there so the other members of the body can do their jobs and support us and help us grow and help us get better and point us to Jesus, then we are going to miss out and we are going to live lives that are absolutely short of what God has designed for us. God's got a great design if we work together. There's an excerpt from Chuck Swindoll. It's called Lessons from a Tavern. And Jimmy sent this to me a couple weeks ago. But I think this is an example of what we want to be very mindful of in how we do church, how we belong to each other, how we are committed to be members of the body together. But I think it's also a challenge to us because there's so much truth in it. He says... An old Marine Corps buddy of mine, to my pleasant surprise, came to know Christ after he was discharged. I say surprise because he cursed loudly, fought hard, chased women, drank heavily, loved war and weapons, and hated chapel services. A number of months ago, I ran into this fellow. And after we talked a while, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, You know, Chuck, the only thing I still miss is that old fellowship I used to have with all the guys down at the tavern. I remember how we used to sit around and let our hair down. I can't find anything like that for Christians. I no longer have a place to admit my faults and talk about my battles. Where somebody won't preach at me and frown and quote me a verse. It wasn't one month later that in my reading I came across this pro profound paragraph. It says, quote, The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It's unshockable. It's democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes, not because most people are alcoholics, but because God put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit, at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, the writer concludes, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable. A fellowship where people can come and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. So some of these examples. A woman discovers her husband is a practicing homosexual. Where in the church can she find help where she's secure with that secret? Your mate talks about separation or divorce. To whom do you tell that? Your daughter's pregnant. She's run away for the third time. She's no longer listening to you. Who do you tell that to? You lost your job. It was your fault. You blew it. So there's shame mixed with unemployment. Who do you tell that to? Financially, you were unwise. You were in deep, you're in deep trouble. Or a man's wife is an alcoholic. Or something as horrible as getting back the biopsy from the surgeon and it reveals cancer. And the prognosis isn't good. Or you had an emotional breakdown. To whom do you tell that to? We're the only outfit I know that shoots its wounded. We can become the most severe, condemning, judgmental, guilt-given people on the face of the planet Earth. And we claim it's in the name of Jesus. And all the while, 
we don't even know we're doing it. That's the pathetic part of it all. Church, that's my plea today that we don't turn into that. That somebody can walk through those doors and can walk through a, a home in a small group and say, I don't have much to give right now. I'm broken. I'm sunk. I've screwed up. But I need somebody to pick me up. I need somebody to come alongside of me and join with me and walk alongside of me and show me the way. That's what I want, guys. And I can motivate you. I could probably, I would like to think that I could maybe fire a few people up to get connected. You know, to kind of plug into a small group. But ultimately what I want is I want us to see that with deep conviction that this isn't something I'm just trying to motivate you toward. I'm not trying to motivate you to belong to a group for a few weeks or a few months. I want you to see that based on the authority of Scripture, based on the design of God, that we are committed to be. We are in relationship with Him through Jesus. We're in relationship with the body, the church, with people. We need each other. So here's how we'll close. I want to ask you two questions. First question is very simple. Are you in relationship with God? And we'll go back to what I was saying about Paul laying the foundation in the first 11 chapters of Romans. I want you to know today that there's many people that would convince themselves that yes, I've done that, I've prayed that, I've walked there. But I want you to do a, 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 an evaluation. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring deep conviction if that's not the case. If you do not have a relationship with God, that is exactly where He wants us to start. He wants to draw us in to relationship with Him as, as our Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. He wants us to get to a point where we admit and acknowledge that we can't come to God on our own, that we need the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We need Jesus' sacrifice to have this relationship made right. Are you in relationship with God?